Joining me today is the former COO of PayPal, an angel investor in such companies as Facebook, Uber, and SpaceX, the founder of Kraft Ventures, and a co-host of the All In podcast. David Sachs, welcome to the Rubin Report. Hey, great to be here. I'm glad to have you. You know, when I was looking through all your bios and Wikipedia, which I'm sure is all perfectly true and all that good stuff, there's a lot of stuff I could have pulled there for the bio, and I was thinking for the for my young audience watching this, like basically being part of all of those things kind of seems like the coolest thing possible. So how does somebody get into all of that? Yeah, I mean, I was lucky to uh, graduate Stanford in 1994, which was the year before the internet really kind of took off. And I was lucky enough to meet Peter Thiel when I was there. And we collaborated together on, you know, we both worked on the the uh, student newspaper, the, the sort of conservative libertarian student newspaper that Peter founded. And then we ended up writing a book together. And he recruited me years later to join PayPal. And, um, you know, I actually thought I had missed the whole internet thing. And then I got a call from Peter in 1999. And he told me about this company he was creating. And, uh, you know, that, that company went on to become PayPal. And he recruited me to be the COO. Do you so, think, yeah, that's how I kind of got into it. Yeah. Do you think Peter or you or Alan, like, did anyone realize what any of this stuff was going to become or just when it's unfolding, you just kind of run with it and see what happens? You know, it, at the time we, we, we sort of knew on a, like a certain level that it was changing the world. Like at PayPal, we had this user counter that would track the user growth. We called it the world domination index. <laughs> So on a certain level, we kind of, you know, thought it was taking over the world. But on another level, we didn't quite, you know, un understand it. It felt a little bit like fantasy or something. Um, so, so yeah, it was like, you know, it, 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 it definitely operated on both levels. Yeah. How much of PayPal was just trying to get people to, like, understand you could do things differently? Like, I, I literally remember... The first time I saw PayPal, I had moved into a new apartment with a couple roommates. I was a struggling comic. I barely had any money. And one of my roommates said to me, you got to pay me on PayPal for the rent. And I, I didn't even know what that meant. Like the idea that I could link a bank account to something online. And I don't even think we had Wi-Fi yet. Like it was still wired to the wall. Like just getting people to like understand there's new ways of doing things. Like how much of it is just that? A, a big part of it. And then the the other big part of it was just making it really easy to actually do it. So, you know, we, it, it's a lot easier now. We didn't have all the tools, you know, that we, that we have now 20 years ago. And so just getting the product to be super simple. So you could put in an email address, put in your credit card number and it would send the money and then you'd get it and be able to take your bank account. I mean, it sounds really easy, but there, you know, there's all this friction in the way that had to be removed. And I think part of the reason why we were successful is we, we were able just to make it like incredibly simple. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the diversity myth and I've, I've talked to Peter on the show and you guys wrote this book, 1995. In essence, you, you wrote this at Stanford. You guys kind of predicted everything that was happening, that's happening right now. Like really the, the idea that, that sort of the, the diversity of immutable characteristics would matter more than the diversity of thought which we now see just rampaging through all our businesses and institutions and the political sphere and everything. How did you guys see it coming? Well, we had we had been you know writing on the the Stanford Review, and Stanford was sort of the epicenter. That there was a famous protest in 1988 where 
Jesse Jackson led a led a, a a mob that was chanting, "Hey, hey, ho, ho! Western culture's got to go." So Stanford was sort of the the epicenter for for a lot of that stuff. And um, so we were writing about it as, as student journalists in a way, and and that book was an extension of the student journalism we had done. Um, you know, looking back, I mean, I was a, a teenager when uh, we, we wrote a lot of that. I wouldn't necessarily make all the same arguments the same way that I did back then, but I do think we were ahead of the curve in realizing, you know, this um, this growing illiberalism, you know, this, this sort of political correctness now it's you know called cancel culture where uh where you know they're, they're, we're putting restrictions on people's ability to speak and to think and uh to express themselves in ways that i think would have been um uh, w w that that certainly you know 1960s liberals w wouldn't have um you know wouldn't wouldn't have supported and so you know i never i never initially saw, saw myself as a conservative i saw myself as more of like a 1960s style liberal who believed in free speech and, you know, a colorblind society. I know, I know the feeling, man. <laughs> I, I think we're on a similar journey here yeah. uh, with, with these issues. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was the illiberalism on campus that sort of pushed me to become more politically aware. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that's what the book was about. And, and now really the whole country is like, um, it was like Andrew Sullivan says, we all live on campus now. Right, because it's kind of funny to me. You guys were writing about this in 95 and say when I was talking about some of this stuff five years ago, so you know, 20 years after you wrote about it, people kept saying to me, no, no, it's just gonna stay on campuses. And when they get to the real world, the real world will show them. And uh, no, well, those, that did not work out. Those students graduated, you know, and uh, and they took those ideologies into the places where where they went, and uh, so you know they took them to the you know a lot of those graduates went off to run school boards or to run uh, you know newspapers, the New York Times, and you know places like that. I mean, this is it's a very elite um, uh, philosophy or ideology that's being um, imposed, and it's it's coming from places like you know Stanford and other. Uh, Ivy League type type schools. Yeah, so you've been big on sort of the three topics that at least for me at the moment are, are my big three topics, which are, are big tech, COVID, and then California specifically, because I think there's COVID at a sort of national and worldwide level and then California. So we'll hold that for a moment. But on, on the big tech stuff, you know, I, I started talking about free speech a couple of years ago. And then there was suddenly this feeling that we were kind of being censored, but we couldn't figure it out. Then we started hearing phrases like shadow banning and de-boosting and algorithmic fairness, all of these things. And I think one of the things that people wonder about is how this all infected all of, seemingly all of the big tech companies. Do you have, do you have any theories on where it sort of started in there and, and how it became so inclusive? Yeah, well, I think you know the the technology industry is in, is primarily based in Silicon Valley, and most of the people are are pretty liberal, and so there there would be sort of that that liberal skew. But it, but for I'd say most of the evolution of these big tech companies, they saw themselves as neutral uh, platforms, uh, and they they didn't see themselves as partisans engaged in a political battle. Um, they merely wanted to create the the tools and the platforms for other people to communicate. And I think something changed. Uh, if I had to sort of pinpoint when it changed, it would have been around 2016. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, when when Trump got elected, I think that uh, a lot of big tech bought into the argument that they had sort of caused uh, Trump to, to to be elected or, you know, that that sort of disinformation, you know, had been used through their platforms and that this had resulted in the election of Trump. And so therefore they could no longer just be neutral. They would have to take corrective measures to prevent this uh, this disinformation. And I think that was sort of the, the the beginning of it, where again, the 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 I think big tech sort of bought into this idea. I think they were predisposed to buying into it because they were liberal, but they were never as partisan as they subsequently became over the last few years. It's not that dissimilar from I think what happened with the news industry. You know, there were people like Brent Bazell for years who were doing studies showing that 90 plus percent mm-hmm. of reporters were liberal, voted Democrat and so on. But they believed in a, a code, a journalistic code of objectivity or neutrality. And somehow, you know, over uh, over the last four years, Trump was perceived as such a threat that, you know, the media decided that it was more important to stop Trump than to live up to the sort of this code of of neutrality. And I think Something similar happened in, in big tech as well. Yeah, has it been tough for you as someone that isn't purely a leftist, regardless of how you fully define yourself, but you're not, you're clearly not purely a leftist, but to be in San Francisco and, and still be around a lot of that? I mean, right now we know that a ton of people, the whole the whole biz, the whole industry is fleeing to Miami. Miami's looking pretty good right now to have some open conversations. Well, yeah, I mean, so uh, no, I mean, there's been no reprisals or anything like that. But I do think that people feel like they can't say, you know, exactly what they think. I do think that people feel um, uncomfortable expressing a view that's not the prevailing, you know, the prevailing views. And uh, so for me, part of the reason why I started doing the all in pod and started speaking out more is just to show people that they could speak out. um, Because the gap between what makes sense and what people feel comfortable has never been greater. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look back on 2020, I mean, just to name a few issues, I mean, these protracted lockdowns that, you know, aren't substantiated by science. I mean, they're just kind of crazy. The idea of defunding or abolishing the police. I mean, you can, you know, believe that we need to have controls on the use of violence by police, but just to say that we should just abolish the, the mm-hmm. police or, or, um, or, or defund them, or to empty out the jails, as a, which is happening now in, in San Francisco and, and we'll, LA. We'll get to your so, DA in a little yeah, bit. Don't worry about that. So those are just for me. But but what struck me is not just like that these ideas are just so crazy and sort of off base, but just that nobody felt comfortable saying these things. And so I felt a little bit of an obligation to speak out more because you know economically, I you know I, if I get canceled, I'm still going to be fine. You know. Um, I'm not, I'm in a, I'm in a position where, I mean, I don't know if I can be canceled, but, um, but if I can, I'm my, you know, economically I'm gonna be fine. So, um, so I, I felt like we need more people to speak up, you know, speak out so that everybody feels comfortable and they don't feel like they're just going crazy if they're, you know, not in favor of, of defunding the police or something like that. Yeah. Are you, are you surprised that in the Silicon Valley world, there aren't more people? I mean, there's plenty of people that I think have a little more libertarian approach to the, to the world. I think all of you guys, you like business, you like competition, you like capitalism, all of those things. And there are plenty of people that are at least somewhat financially secure that, that still are pretty quiet because they'll reach out to me privately, but then they're like, no, 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 I'm not going to go on the show. 
Yeah, so it's funny the the latest episode. So I, I do a pod with yep. uh, called the All In Pod with three other friends in Silicon Valley. We all play poker together. That's hence the the name All In, and it, it's it's a sort of a mix of people across the political spectrum. Uh, but on the last episode, we were joking that it was sort of the red pill episode because we were talking about uh, California and we were talking about crime in San Francisco. We were talking about um, the protracted lockdowns. Um, we were talking about the Newsom recall and pretty much everybody on the pod, uh, you know, all four of us were basically espousing positions that you could say were, you know, uh, to the, I don't even know if they were to the right of center, but they were sort of, you know, red pilled. And so I think there is kind of now, um, I think more of, of a willingness of people. Well, I don't know if it's a willingness to speak out, but I definitely think there's a lot more people who feel the way that we do, that things have gone too far um, and, and I think part of it is also that with Trump off the scene, it, it does depressurize the situation to some degree for, you know, like some of the you know, one or two of the guys on, on our pod, um, I would describe as having TDS for sure, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, now, now that he's that he's sort of cured of his Trump derangement syndrome, he's, um, you know, he's speaking out uh, about uh, the, the DA in, in San Francisco as much as anybody. So. So yeah, I mean, I think that that changes things a little bit. Yeah, all right, so before we go too far down the, the California thing, and I know you've got all, all kinds of issues uh, with your DA up there, and you have challenged him to a debate, we'll see if it actually actually happens. But I, right. I just thought we could go into some of like the basic stuff about big tech that I think people are confused by. So you've written a bunch about section 230 of the Communications Act, yep. and I thought maybe, could you just kind of clean it up for people? Because I hear a lot of people saying, oh, Trump should have invoked 2.30 and now it's too late and we should do it, we shouldn't do it. But basically in your in your Medium article, you make the argument, it's, it's a little more nuanced perhaps than, than just invoking yeah. it or getting rid of it or whatever else. Yeah, the, the call that you're hearing by conservatives is that they want to repeal Section 2.30, which is the liability shield that protects big tech companies. And, and what that liability shield does is that when somebody uh, posts content on their platforms, that would normally give rise to liability. You could only sue the person who posted it, not the platform. So it's a little bit like the distinction between a, a magazine and a newsstand. You know, if the magazine publishes an article that's defamatory, then the magazine can be sued. But the newsstand mm -hmm. on which the magazine is sold cannot be sued. It did not participate in the creation of that content. It merely distributed it. That was the distinction that Section 230 sought to establish, it basically said that these big tech companies, and really all tech companies, this doesn't just apply to the big ones, but to small innovators as well, they're protected as long as all they're doing is distributing. Um, as long as they're not creating the content, they're, and, and I think there's a lot of, that makes a lot of sense because you couldn't have um, restaurant reviews on Yelp, you know, if, if Yelp could be sued every time, mm -hmm. you know, a small business didn't like the review. You know, you would have, um, you know, Reddit was sued recently because people in a in a comment board lost money on one of the trades that was, you know, that was posted in Wall Street Bets. And so, you know, and so, you know, Gmail, Gmail maybe would be imperiled if Google could be sued every time a crime was committed using Gmail, mm -hmm. right? And so it doesn't make sense to always hold the, the, the tech platform liable for any content that the user is posting. You should really go after those those users. That part of Section 230, which is sort of as perfect, uh, uh, provision uh, 230C1, that still, I think, makes a lot of sense. And if you were to get rid of it, sort of throw 
the baby out with the bathwater, I think you would hurt a lot of small innovators. Um, there's a lot of small tech companies that rely on that liability protection to offer their service. The problem is that it all came in with section uh, C2, which basically, th th this is, <laughs> it's really interesting. This is where Congress, uh, this, this is where, um, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. What Congress tried to do in C2 was say to the big tech companies, listen, we, we don't want to punish you for being good Samaritans. So if you want to take down content on your site, because it's um, pornographic, it's it's obscene, it's v excessively violent, or otherwise objectionable, you can take that down, and we won't hold you to be a publisher. You'll still stay say you'll stay a newsstand in our eyes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Congress tried to to they, Congress was very worried. This was 1996 when the the act was passed, called the Communications Decency Act, and they were very worried about sort of smut on the internet. And they were trying to give tech companies uh, an incentive or protection to remove this type of objectionable content without then triggering liability. And so, but see, this is where all the censorship concern has now come in right. because fast forward 15 years later, and big tech companies are using this very broad term, otherwise objectionable, to mean content that they simply don't like, that you know politically they don't like it. And so they now have all the censorship power. And this is where all the problem has come in. This is why you know Trump and others have called for the repeal of Section 230. I understand that um, the, the desire because I think the censorship is wrong, but I just think that we need a, we need a slightly different solution. Right, so do you have a sense of what goes on at the board meetings of these companies when they're trying to make these policies? Because I think a lot of people think, and I've tried to get my audience off this idea, that it's just a couple of guys sitting there and they all hate conservatives and, and the goal is just to destroy conservatives. Because I don't think it's that simple. I think it's much more complex than that. But what would be like a sensible policy? Because it seems fairly obvious. You you can see it in, in Twitter trends. You know, I screen capture them all the time and it's very obvious when they're actually, sometimes they're actually trying to push a mob towards somebody. Um, so what, what would be a sensible policy that you think would be, would be honest and, and legal, I suppose? Well, I, I'm pretty happy with the First Amendment. You know, um, I think the First Amendment and, and 230 years of Supreme Court case law provides us with the standard. And the, the Supreme Court for two centuries has been wrestling with the problem of dangerous speech. And there are, the, the, I think there's a misconception that the First Amendment allows anything goes. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. There are at least nine categories of speech that are not protected by the First Amendment because they're dangerous. You cannot yell, you know, fire in a crowded theater. You cannot incite people to commit a crime. Uh, you can't engage in fraud. You know, you can't, you can't defame somebody. Um, there, you know, fighting words are illegal. So there, there's a lot of categories of speech that that aren't protected. And, and most of, of the speech that causes social networks the greatest problems, they fall into one of those categories. And so I think it would be very um, doable for them to create a content moderation policy that is broadly consistent with the First Amendment. Now, the reason why I say broadly is because, look, we're like take defamation, for example. We're not going to do a court trial every time that a user complains that they're being harassed by another user, right, okay? Right. What, what we're gonna do is we're gonna have a standard that says that if a user complains about another user's post and that post is uh, facially defamatory about that other user, we're gonna take it down because there are billions of these social media 
posts and we're not going to run a trial every time. But we're going to take our guidelines uh, from First Amendment case law. And those are basically going to be the broad categories. What we're not going to do is create new categories of speech that um, are prohibited um, because that would appropriate to the big tech companies uh, uh, extraordinary power. You know, but, um, but do you but do you think the problem? Do you think the inherent problem is that because so much of the social justice stuff has now leaked into these companies, that you know I, I can get on board what you just said. Most of my audience can get on board what you what you just said, but they can't because they've accepted this ideology that in many ways is just completely counter to that. I th I think ideology is very motivating, especially for a lot of the low-level employees who've banded together and created pressure on the leadership, the management of these companies. Um, they've, you know, created these these campaigns, these boycotts. There's also pressure coming from above, uh, from the Senate Ju uh, Judiciary Committee, and that committee basically, in, you know, in these hearings, the the, the people who are now uh, the, the 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 leading members of that committee uh, keep ba basically are telling big tech, uh, on the one hand, we want you to censor more, and on the other, we're thinking about breaking you up. And um, and so there's a lot of pressure, I think, on, that, that big tech is feeling that if they don't go along with these policies, that uh, either they're gonna you know, anger the people above, um, and, and, and that may increase the chances they get you know, busted up, or that they will, you know, they're gonna upset sort of this pressure that's coming from below from the employees. Um, I, I don't think it's a very good excuse, by the way. I think they should have more courage and backbone than that. I think um, our commitment to free speech should be made of sterner stuff than that. Yeah. But I think the reality is that these companies are you know, succumbing to pressure campaigns. What do you think just broadly about just the amount of power that they have over us? Because you mentioned the First Amendment before. I don't think the founders could have ever imagined that there would basically be four companies that in many ways I think you could argue are more powerful than the government, at least in our day-to-day -day lives at this point? Like, wh what do we do about that amount of power? They, they do have an extraordinary amount of power because what happened is the town square got privatized. Um, free speech got digitized. That caused the town square to get privatized and the First Amendment got euthanized. Um, you know, because, you know, when the, when the framers of the Constitution wrote the First Amendment, where did you go for free speech? There were a multiplicity of town squares all over the country. There were thousands of them. You could get on the courthouse steps, pull out your soapbox, you could speak, and anyone who wanted to listen could gather around. But that's why the First Amendment contains not just a right to free speech, but a right to peacefully assemble. Well, where do people assemble today? On these massive social networks, which have gigantic network effects, that is where you go to be heard. And if you cannot express yourself on one of these social networks, to what extent do you still have a free speech right in this country? I don't think you do. And what we saw and what we're seeing you know, since, since the election is that you effectively have a cartel of these big tech companies coming together, making identical decisions to deny people their free speech rights. And you know, again, to what extent do you really have a First Amendment right in this country when the town square has been privatized and you've been you know, deplatformed. Can you talk a little bit about how you think that cartel works? Because you've written a little bit about this. Like when Trump got taken out after January 6th, when they took him off Spotify and Pinterest and Twitter and YouTube, you know, it wasn't even the ones where he was. It's like, okay, now he can't listen to music anymore either. Like we're just gonna take him out of everything. That, that they operate sort of as a cartel. It's like they just wait for the first mover and then everybody sort of in a minute does the exact same thing. Well, so Jack Dorsey actually explained it. 
um, he wrote a tweet storm in which he need, felt the need to defend the, the their action to permanently uh, deplatform. Uh, well, you had a funny you had a funny comment on what he said because it's like he does these things and then he suddenly feels very emotional about what he's done and then he opens up about well, yeah, everything. They, they make these knee jerk decisions and there's like a violent reaction to it and then because they don't they have a blind spot with respect to their you know their, their partisan biases and then they realize oh wait a second we just did something that is a big deal. And then he comes out and then gets very introspective and tries to explain it. Um, at least he tries to explain it. That makes Jack my my favorite oligarch. Um, so, <laughs> but what what he said is that um, when we Twitter decided to ban Trump, um, we didn't think it was that big a deal because there were other places he could go to basically get his free speech right. And then all these other companies did the same thing. Um, and, and he's right. If if only one company were to, you know, deplatform you, it might not be that big a deal. But when all of them are doing it at the same time, they're acting as effectively a speech cartel. Now, what what Jack said is that they that all of us, you know, didn't collude to make these decisions, but we emboldened each other. That was his word is emboldened. It sounds mm -hmm. a lot to, to me what we would call signaling an antitrust law where you have a bunch of companies that normally compete with each other and therefore are trying to make different decisions, not, not all trying to get to the same decision, they're trying to compete with each other. But signaling occurs when one company does something and then you know all the other companies follow suit. And that's basically what's happening is that, um, is that with each incremental company that decides to, to ban Trump or whoever, the pressure builds on all the rest of them to do the same thing, otherwise they'll be subject to you know, letter writing campaigns and boy and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, whether they're actively colluding or not, or whether it's merely just a signaling, you have the same effect, which is a cartel. So would you break them up? I mean, would you use the force of government to, to break up some of these companies at this point? I, I would seriously look at it because I think they are too powerful, but I don't think it's gonna solve the, the speech problem for this reason. Uh, imagine that Google is busted up into, you know, we have kind of Google search and then YouTube becomes its own property. And, you know, maybe there's like a third division for enterprise. Well, I mean, YouTube is the one that, that, that we, we sort of care about. It's we're not going to divide that property up. It's still going to be run. It'll just have a different cap table. It's mm -hmm. going to have the same the same executives. They all drink from the same sort of monocultural fountain. They all have the same. Um, ideological commitments and biases. They're su subject to most of the same pressures. Uh, so I don't know that if, if you effectively increase the size of the speech cartel from five members to 10 members, I don't know that that by itself does anything. Um, I, I think what we need, I'm, and I'm not expecting to get this from Congress anytime soon, is um, some sort of common carrier um, obligations imposed on these big tech monopolies. Uh, this is a proposal that came from Richard Epstein is a professor mm -hmm. at the University of Chicago. Basically, what he says is, look, if you're a gigantic monopoly or a utility, you can't deny a service to somebody based on their creed. You know, that that's the non-discrimination rule that we need. Uh, imagine if, um, you know, like a, a common carrier would be something like a, a railroad, you know, where it's, it's, a, it's a natural monopoly. Uh, imagine if in the days of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and, you know, they got around the country by train. Imagine if, I don't know, some oligarch, Cornelius Vanderbilt or something said, you know, Mr. Lincoln, I don't I don't like your your point of view in this debate. I'm going to deny you service. I don't want you to be able to express your views. Well, 
there's no way that we would have let that happen. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't let body, we wouldn't let monopolies be that powerful where they can deny service to essential facilities to people based on their creed. And, and that basically is the, the legislative fix here, I think, more than doing something like repealing Section 230, which I think would hurt a lot of small innovators. Right. Um, so, so yeah, but, but look, you know, I'm not expecting to get that in the next two years or even four years, so. I'm guessing, generally speaking, though, you'd rather have technological solutions to this than governmental solutions? I, I would, but, um, but I don't know that we're going to get a technological solution because I do think that, you know, monopolies are, are real. I mean, part of what I do as an investor is trying to invest in the next set of monopolies. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and you know, that's what Peter Peter's whole book, uh, yeah. Zero to One, is about. Is there's there's two kinds of companies. Right there, yeah, there right there. The shelf. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two kinds of companies, right? There's monopolies and commodities. You want to be a monopoly. Well, monopolies have incredible market power. Um, I think it was it was fine when those monopolies were lawfully gained and weren't trying to use their power to put their thumb on the scale of American democracy. Um, you know, and and it, and it wasn't that long ago that these big tech companies, you know, uh, would would state their their uh, commitment to neutrality. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg gave, I think, a very good speech just a few years ago in 2018, in which he said that he said social networks were were the fifth estate. You know, the the the, the traditional media historically was the fourth mm -hmm. estate. I don't know. I think one through three were like, I don't know. They go back to Europe or something like the nobility and the peasants it's and the, the people, yeah, people. Yeah. the people yeah 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 anyway the fourth estate is traditional media what zuckerberg says is that social networks were the fifth estate and that they posed a threat to the people in power just like the the, the fourth estate did and therefore it needed to be protected and i think he's right about that and the the sad thing is that he has felt the need to kind of move off that position um and uh, and engage in this sort of uh, censorship. He's, he's yeah. When you see these guys have to go in front of Congress, you know, when you see Jack or Zuckerberg, I, I don't know if you know them personally. I, you know, probably at least somewhere in, in the circles or, or somewhat close. But when you see them have to, you know, basically be arguing with people who have so little understanding of what the real issues are or any of that stuff, does it just like drive you crazy to see it? It's it's a little painful, you know, because the the people doing the the questioning by and large don't don't have the knowledge to or ability to kind of interrogate the these CEOs the way the way that they should. But so, some of them do, you know. There have been some interesting moments where these CEOs get questioned and sort of dressed down. I mean, there's a lot of like theater. It's very performative. There's a lot of grandstanding. I mean, I don't really know how much progress gets made in these in these hearings. But the point of it, I think, is valid, which is you have these a handful of tech oligarchs who now control the public square and they've appropriated to themselves a vast power to decide who has access and which views have access and, and which views they're going to silence and censor and basically ghost. And, you know, and no one elected them to have that power. And I think we should be rightly concerned about that. And I think we should question them about uh, how they are wielding that power. How much of an escalation do you think it was when Parler got nuked by Amazon? Because that was completely different taking away servers than you know taking away speech of an individual person. Yeah, I mean, it was an escalation because you had not just um, you know one person, Trump or his supporters, being 
ghosted or deplatformed, but you had 16 million parlor users or whatever it is, 99.9% of whom never did anything wrong, you know, and that was a diminishment of their free speech rights. Um, it was also, I think, uh, unjustified. Uh, if, if the justification for that was that parlor was used in the planning of the events of January 6th, it was clearly a scapegoating because um, we now have uh, FBI charging documents have yeah. come out. They found 226 cases. The social networking site that was used 10x more than all the others was Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know, Parler was used one tenth of the amount that Facebook was, but Parler was you know was sort of an easy an easy target to sort of scapegoat for that. Is that purely because of? sort of the cartel mindset that you were discussing before? Like there's certain, there's, you know, however many people or companies are involved in the cartel and here's just this new guy. So it's like, well, they are competition. There are 21 million people over there. May as well just take them out, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I think they're an easy target. Um, I think Facebook clearly was eager to deflect blame onto Parler. There was actually a pretty good article in the Washington Post uh, about that, um, you know, t- calling Facebook out on that, um, pointing to the fact that they had a lot more of this problematic content than 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 Parler did. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's an easy way for these big tech companies to show that they're doing something uh, to control, you know, disinformation or whatever that the powers that be now, you know, are concerned about. And again, I think this all goes back to the fact that. Uh, these the big tech companies are very worried about getting broken up right now. They don't want to get busted up. And so they're looking to curry favor with, the, you know, the current administration in Washington. So I can hear all my pure libertarian fans in the back of my head going, OK, you guys are talking too much about government and antitrust and regulation and breaking them up and all that stuff when you should be talking about decentralization and, and crypto and everything else. Do you think there are enough answers there basically to, to solve a lot of this stuff? Not in the near term. I mean, I'm a I'm a fan of a lot of those crypto projects, but they're 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 very much projects. Um, I, I would like to be able to call them companies. Um, some of them, I guess, are companies, but they're still at a super early stage. Um, you know, we're still building out core infrastructure of these sort of blockchain uh, platforms. To my knowledge, there has not been a breakout application built on top of any of these sort of crypto platforms, um, except. If you want to, you know, except for like Bitcoin and then uh, DeFi or decentralized finance, basically financial speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're a long way off from, you know, uh, uh, being able to run truly decentralized, say, speech apps uh, with billions of users. You know, that that seems to me years off, if not decades. And I'm not really willing to kind of wait that long to kind of have the First Amendment back. Yeah, and by the way, that creates a whole host of other problems, right? Because then you can put all sorts of horrible stuff on there, and once it's there, it's there, and then then you got a whole bunch of other problems. Yeah, it's not it's not clear exactly. Yeah, I mean, you, you need to have some sort of regulation of these sites, and you know, it's it's not that I want there to be anything goes. I just would prefer to put my faith in a venerable external standard like. First Amendment case law than to give all, all this power to these unelected, you know, oligarchs uh, to make these decisions about who gets to participate in an American democracy. Yeah. So let's let's shift a little to, to lockdowns and generally what's happened in the last year, because basically the, from almost the day we're posting this, it was pretty much a year ago right now, two weeks to flatten the curve. 
now it's a year later and people, you know, Biden's double masking and, you know, California, you still can't go to indoor restaurants or go to the gym. And I guess we're gonna partially open on April 1st or something like that. Um, but so much of this does seem attached to big tech because they're letting you say certain things about lockdowns and not letting you say certain things. Is your belief that there was just no science behind the lockdowns at all at any point? Well, I guess at the very beginning of COVID, we didn't exactly know. And so I don't fault anyone too much for the decisions that were made to lock down back in March or April. Um, we, we simply didn't know. As you, you'll recall, I mean, we were seeing what was happening in Italy. The hospitals were completely overrun. And so this idea of, you know, of, of locking things down to buy time so that our medical system didn't get overrun. I could understand the argument, but I think by the, by last summer, it was becoming pretty clear that lockdowns had an enormous cost to them and a very unclear benefit. And, um, and I think as the year progressed, we had more and more data around this. Um, certainly I think by the fall, um, anyone who was paying attention to that data would have, you know, sh should have been against, uh, lockdowns. I think, even by May, I was tweeting that the right policy was to go all in on mass and, and to not do lockdowns. So, I mean, I think the data was clear even by then. So what do you think was going on? I mean, like in the mind, we'll, we'll get to California more specifically, but generally like the in the mind of Gavin Newsom, in the mind of, of Gretchen Whitmer, in the mind of Andrew Cuomo, these people that, you know, in essence destroyed their states in a lot of ways versus Texas and scary Florida, like, what do you think they were thinking? Because if, I can't find any science anywhere. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, for a couple of weeks you could try it and there was this unsure moment and all that. But then after that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly why they thought the political calculus, it would benefit them to, to have this extreme lockdown policy. But I, but I think there was sort of a collective failure of um, elite thinking um, on COVID and really on many other issues. And it really, you know, you have to go back to the WHO getting just about everything wrong yeah. from the beginning. First, um, you know, all the way back in January saying that it wasn't clear that there was human to human contact. And then, uh, when it cl was clear that there was, they, um, they greatly exaggerated the, uh, case fatality rate by claiming that there, there weren't a lot of asymptomatic cases. Um, you know, we would later learn that there was a huge, number of asymptomatic cases and therefore we should you know the infection fatality rate was more like one tenth the the case fatality rate but they got that wrong and sort of miseducated us and, and then that led to us thinking the, the the virus would be even more severe than it was um you know then then they were wrong about mass and so was you know fauci and the cdc i mean i wrote a blog post in early april saying that mass should be the, the policy i thought that was um that was the type of thing that was low cost, high benefit, um, and, and the type of thing we should be doing, you know, not not lockdowns. Um, and then, you know, they, they got lockdowns wrong and then they reversed course on that. And so there's just been like, uh, systematically, I think the health establishment just seems like they've gotten everything wrong here. And it, it kind of, I mean, just to tie it back to the censorship thing, um, it shows how ridiculous it is to maintain this position that we can censor mm -hmm. based on what experts tell us, as YouTube has been doing. You know, YouTube has been censoring uh, COVID 
videos that have been put up that they say uh, contradict the WHO. Apparently without irony, because no one has contradicted <laughs> the WHO more than the WHO itself. Yeah. Um, so, but, but this idea that we can simply rely on experts, I think that, I mean, it has to be that the, that has to be one of the big takeaways of COVID is that we, we cannot rely on these experts. They're just wrong way too often. And even, you know, Fauci today and what, and the guidance we're getting today is far too conservative. You know, um, Fauci recently said that we might have to wear a mask until 2022. Well, why? I mean, you know, are you saying the vaccines don't work? Um, because it seems to me that, that the messaging we're getting now is effectively anti-vax. I mean, right. if the vaccines work. <laughs> right. They've all become the anti-vaxxers. Yeah. Yeah. If the vaccines work and Biden has now said that every American adult can get one by the end of May, why would we need any more restrictions after Memorial Day? Um, and so I, I was in favor of a mask policy early on, but I do not support uh having a mass policy once vaccines are available. Why? So you guys were just talking about zeroism on on the show and that it's a perfect segue for that. So can you explain that? Yeah, so Jonathan Chait actually came up with it. Um, you know, I think he's a writer for the, I guess- uh, New Yorker New or, I always forget New if it's Mag New Yorker or New York Magazine. I think it's a magazine. Okay. Yeah, I don't think, I think, um, I think he's probably, uh, uh, I don't. I don't think he's red pilled. I think he's he's pretty liberal, yeah. but um, he's pretty. He, he liberal, might have called me racist once or twice in a tweet. Uh, uh, yeah. no. Okay. Well, he wrote one good column yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where he, he uh, coins this term uh, zeroism, and what it basically is is a refusal to deal with COVID um, according to cost benefit analysis, and to insist that even one case of COVID is unacceptable because somebody can die. And therefore, we need to have a policy of stamping out every last case of COVID. That, that's zeroism. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with, with zeroism is that we're, we're never going to get rid of COVID. I mean, there are always going to be a smattering of cases somewhere. It's a seasonal illness. It's going to return. And the, the problem is that if every time it returns, we now have the justification for the politicians to you know, engage in like all these emergency measures, it gives them extraordinary powers. Um, so, yeah, that 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 that's the thing that I think needs to be be challenged. I mean, and and look look at how zeroism is being used right now, or has already. Been, I mean, obviously, it was used to justify uh, the continuation of lockdowns far beyond mm -hmm. what was necessary. It's being used today to keep schools closed. You know, you have the education unions saying that even after they're vaccinated, if there are any cases of community spread for that, that if there's even one case of community spread in a two week period, they will not go back to school. So, I mean, this is a recipe for keeping schools closed forever. You had our district attorney in San Francisco use COVID as the excuse to empty out all the jails. You had Gavin Newsom use COVID as the excuse for billions of dollars of no bid contracts to his political supporters. And so, you know, you have this suspending of normal operating procedure of the way that government works. And if we're going to suspend it every time there's a like one COVID case, well, that, that that's not going to work. Are, are um, you worried, though, that that is the the net effect of this thing, that they pushed us for a year and they whoever they are, but, you know, in effect, the system. So, boy, we can really get people to destroy their own lives and not see their family and not travel and yet they'll do it in some places like Florida, but we can get people in California to act like sheep and there's almost no pushback. So, so why not keep pushing? 
Well, I think there's there's a lot of pushback now. I mean, yeah. look, I think there are a lot of people who who are frightened of COVID and, and there will be some PTSD about it. But I think that, you know, we're seeing now with the Newsom recall that I think people are very upset about the restrictions and the, 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 the hypocrisy of it. You know, the fact that Newsom was going to French laundry and, you know, even during the time when he was doubling down on lockdowns and telling people they couldn't go to the beach, which, I mean, that makes no sense because there, there's been no real outdoor spread. Um, so you had that, you know, he was sending his own kids to private school when, you know, the public schools were, were still closed and still are closed. Um, so I think people are pretty riled up by this and I do expect that people will want to go back to the way things were pre COVID very, very quickly. Um, and I, I, but I think the battle to be joined over the next few months is the battle against zeroism and, um, and I and I and I expect that we'll win that battle. Um, I expect that if Newsom sticks to the zeroist position, he will he will he will be defeated. I mean, the recall election will be in I think around August. I think every American who wants a vaccine will be able to get one in May. And so I think to the extent that California still has all these restrictions, I think every week pressure is going to build. People are going in California to look and say, well, wait. None of these other states are doing this stuff. Why are we still restricted? Yeah, are you worried you know, though? That, are you, are to... you worried though that basically every week from now till the election he's going to open up more and more, and we'll we'll just kind of forget, right? Because we all have short memories, and and even though we've got the two million signatures, I, I know you're you're bullish on the recall that we'll just kind of forget. Well, I think I think Newsom has already um, moved uh, to the center uh, because of recall. I mean, there was a there, there was a it was suspicious that. He 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 reopened uh, that he ended lockdowns for at least a big chunk of the lockdowns um, right when the recall uh, passed a million signatures. So I think the recall has been creating pressure on him to do the right thing. Um, I mean, I think that's a good thing that um, that it's it's that even if the recall doesn't ultimately pass, uh, I still think it's a good thing that it's for it's reminding the politicians that they work for us and. Um, and for them not to not to forget that. Yeah. Before we move on to your fair city of San Francisco, it just uh, just hit me. Jonathan Chait didn't call me racist. He did go after me for being a small businessman because I said I had like four. I had said I said I had several employees, and he felt that that wasn't enough to be able to comment on economics or something to that effect. Anyway, I, it wasn't it wasn't a racist, so I want to yeah. clean that up. But all right, let's talk about San Francisco yeah. because. Uh, you're not happy with what's going on in San Francisco. And I've been there a couple times in the last couple of years. And I mean, it's kind of disgusting. The amount of homelessness, the, the drug use, like it's pretty, you know, there's an app to track where human poop is. Like how much worse does it get in a Western society city? It's, it's become totally dystopian and a lot of people are leaving, like huge numbers of people left during COVID. I don't even think we know how many people have left. Um, I guess we'll find out after COVID and everything reopens um, exactly you know, how damaged the city has become, but it has become a huge problem. And um, you know, homelessness is out of control, crime is out of control. Um, the city's budget is completely mismanaged. Um, they, they were due for a giant budgetary shortfall, but they're going to be saved by the $1.9 trillion bill that's coming out of Washington. So we'll defer that day of reckoning yep, for, yep. for another day. But 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 the city is um, squandering money. They was 
recently revealed that they spent $16 million providing um, 260 tents for, for homeless people. So it was a cost of $61,000 per tent. Um, I mean, <laughs> so you're, obviously- you're saying that's not capital efficient. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I've heard a number that the, the city on, on the whole, if you look at all the homeless services, spends about $330,000 per year per homeless person. So, I mean, that's just like staggering. So can you explain why people seem to be unable, maybe it's a California thing, it's the nice weather, I don't know, that they can't seem to connect the bad policies and all of the spending with then the stuff on the ground. They can't understand that the more they put these people into power, the more that the homelessness expands, that the drug use expands, that the schools get worse, that uh, you know businesses leave, that house prices get higher, all of these things. And then they somehow always blame the Republicans, even though there's virtually no Republicans in power in the state. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and, and that's part of the problem is we haven't, for whatever reason, we haven't had a functional Republican Party in, in a long time in California. And so therefore, there hasn't really been a choice. And we kind of we've been living under a one party state and one party states generally don't go very well. So. Yeah, and I, but look, I, I, are voters waking up to this? I think so. I mean, you know, judging by my um, friends on the pod, they're all they're all getting red pilled to one degree or another. I'm not saying they're ready to vote Republican, but I think they're pretty upset and they're looking for a different kind of Democrat. Let's put it that way. Listen, the line I've been using it's basically you're woke or conservative. It doesn't mean you're a conservative like a card carrying member of the Republican party. I, I don't consider myself a Republican, but it's pretty much everyone versus the woke at the moment. And we gotta set aside our differences to, to clean up some of this stuff. Uh, but you've been uh, going after your DA, Chesa Bodine, is that it? Bodine, yeah, Chesa Bodine. Chesa, yeah. Chesa Bodine doesn't have the cojones to debate you apparently. <laughs> well, I'm, I was trying to goad him into a debate because uh, yeah, I mean, I'd love to debate him about what's going on in San Francisco. Um, he, there, there's a number of these radical uh, DAs now. Uh, LA has one too, Gascon, who was a previous DA in San Francisco who moved down to- Yeah, thanks for that. LA. Yeah, exactly. So you should be prepared for, <laughs> uh, for what's coming. Uh, they've done a number of similar things. They've, um, I mean, first of all, they've shown no interest in um, prosecuting misdemeanors, so property crimes. These are just quality of life crimes that don't, you know, they don't affect, they don't have victims is the the theory. Well, they do if you have enough of them and you can't park a car in San Francisco without fear that's going to be broken into. Uh, that the, uh, there's now a, been a, a, a spate of home invasion burglaries. Um, they're up some astronomical number every year. Uh, you know, there's, um, there, there, and now there, there's other kinds of crimes. Um, we've had, a number of people get killed recently. Um, I mean, uh, very sad cases where you had. I mean, there, there been a, just, there's been a few of these recently. So on New Year's Eve, there were two women who were killed. They were run down by uh, a driver of a stolen car who was on drugs, fleeing another crime. Uh, I think a burglary he had committed. This the, the, this this criminal Troy McAllister. He had been arrested five times. Mm -hmm. In the previous six months, he'd been let go every single time. The DA had chosen not to prosecute charges. And in fact, he was paroled six months before in a, in a case where he was in jail waiting trial on, um, on armed robbery. He had used a gun in a, 
in robbing a store. And that was going to be his third strike. And the new DA, Chase Aboudin, came in and pleaded him down to time served. And uh, so, you know, you have a case that with, you know, with New Year's Eve where, you know, the, the decisions of this district attorney led directly to the deaths of these these two people. You had um, uh, Hannah Abe and Elizabeth Platt. Um, so anyway, it was, you know, very sad case. Uh, and there, there's a bunch of these now. I mean, there, there's more and more, you know, victims. What do you think? I mean, just to give the devil his due, like, what do you think the DA thinks he's doing? Well, his agenda is mass decarceration. Um, and he's talked a lot about this. He is the um, child of two weather underground uh, domestic terrorists who were put in jail for uh, an armed robbery, a, a, a Brinks heist that went wrong. They ended up uh, the people in that group ended up killing a couple of um, uh, police officers and, and guards. And so his dad is still in prison. And he, he says his oldest his oldest memory is visiting his parents in prison. And that profoundly shaped his view of politics and the, the criminal justice system. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that his agenda is to release as many criminals as possible without real concern for the new victims that's going to create the victims of crime. And it's a, it's a, it's a radical ideology. Um, I mean, Gascon's ideology is pretty similar. Um, then some examples are, you know, with Gascon, he won't prosecute three strikes. Um, actually his own DAs had to bring a, a lawsuit against yeah, him yeah, yeah. to get to uphold the, the judge. The judge told me he had to, to enforce it. I don't expect him to put a lot of effort into it. Um, He's prohibited prosecutors from attending, both Boudin and Gascon have prohibited prosecutors from attending parole hearings. And so there's no one to stand up in these hearings for the victims when, you know, we're talking about like, you know, criminals who've done, you know, horrible, horrible crimes, killings, and and the victims groups are up in arms because they used to have a prosecutor go up there and speak for them. And because of that, you know, we've already had cases um, in LA where murderers have been set free um, neither one of them will charge, um, enhancements to sense for, you know, uh, gang enhancements, gun enhancements. And I've talked to prosecutors who that's a very important, important part of their charging strategy. Um, and so, you know, they're really, um, taking away all the, the, the weapons that prosecutors had at their disposal to keep, you know, these violent felons off, off the street. Um, and, 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 and by the way, there, there's a, there's a really perverse result that's happened as well, which is, I don't know if you remember, but several years ago, the voters of California passed prop 47, which downgraded a bunch of, uh, property felonies to misdemeanors. And this was marketed to all of us as, you know, prisons were overcrowded and this was excessive punishment. Well, the problem is that, um, that that these 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 property crimes like auto theft and stealing less than nine hundred fifty dollars, uh, now that they're misdemeanors, Boudin and Gascon have absolutely no interest in prosecuting uh -huh. them. I don't think the voters of California would have voted for Prop Forty Seven if they thought they were decriminalizing, you know, theft, which is effectively what they did. Um, and so we now have this problem where shoplifting is basically, it just. We've had Walgreens has exited San Francisco because people would just come in there with garbage bags and full, and just load them up. We, we covered it on my show last week. 10 Walgreens in the San Francisco Bay Area have closed and there's video of just people literally just like one arm, the entire shelf, and what are you gonna do? 
Right. I mean, look, if you have a DA who says effectively that we're not going to prosecute that crime, you've decriminalized it. You've made it legal. And so San Francisco has basically hung a burglar's welcome sign at the city limits. And, um, you know, so I'm not I'm not expecting the crime stats to go in the right direction after this. So, Sex, there are people watching this going, what are you two schmucks doing in California? Give me give me something hopeful. Is there is there anything hopeful? I mean, you know, okay, so maybe the recall happens, maybe. But do you see any real exit? for San Francisco, like how bad does it have to get? How much of that has to be exported, you know, a little down south to me here in LA? Like, do you see any hope? Well, the, the people really are up in arms about um, uh, Boudin, you know, I think even, I'd say even more than Newsom. Um, there, there's a recall underway for Chesa, there's a recall underway for Gascon. Um, in addition to Newsom, heck, there's even a recall underway for the San Francisco school board. So, um, you know, and by the way, I'm supporting all of them. Okay. So, uh, and and if there's anybody I'm else out there who wants to who wants to do a recall, let me know. If you're willing to put in the legwork and the time, I'll I'll uh, write a donation to support you. So, you know, I I do think that you know people are up in arms. And they want to change, and it's not partisan. You know, the first thing that you know Chase and these other guys, what they'd love to make it about is partisan politics. But look, when Chase gets recalled, the mayor London Breed is going to appoint his successor. Mm-hmm. That person is going to be a Democrat. Um, but it's going to be a reasonable Democrat who just wants to enforce the law, do a good job as district attorney. That's all we want. We're not looking for some political change. We just want the laws enforced. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't let these guys change the subject. You know, they're not, it's, this has nothing to do with partisan politics. Yeah. All right. That, that feels like the right end. That was sort of hopeful. That was kind of hopeful. We just want laws enforced. That seems sort of hopeful, right? <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's. I mean, all we're, we're really looking for here is is civil society to basically be restored. I mean, we don't have very high standards. Yeah. I mean, we just want schools to open. We want um, crime to be prosecuted. You know, we want um, the, the, the the government to stop shutting everything down. We, uh, you know, we we want um, government contracting to be done in a transparent way. That's not just a payoff to political supporters. So, I mean, so I guess the, the hopeful thing would be that things are so bad, we don't need a lot to see a big improvement. You know, um, we, we just need to get to some normality here. And I, I do think a majority of voters in the state want this. And so if we can just marshal this energy to produce this change, I think we will get it. Real radical stuff. If we don't, uh, uh, if we don't and I've been out in Miami more. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, real radical stuff, a, a return yeah. to living under the law. How bizarre. All right, well, anyone that wants to get involved with any kind of recall effort, it sounds like David Sachs is willing to write you a check. So his Twitter is at David Sachs. The podcast is the All In Pod, which you can get anywhere podcasts are downloadable. And David, I thank you for doing the show. Yeah, great to be here. 